0: Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101.
1: So today on Political Theory 101, we're doing Ernesto Laclau. Argentine political theorist and the partner of Chantal Mouffe, with whom he wrote Hegemony and Socialist Strategy in 1985. That book has had a considerable amount of influence. We're going to talk a lot about it and a bit about the rest of Laclau's corpus and and also Mouffe's. So, Laclau and Mouffe initially operated within Althusser's structuralist phylum. But eventually, Laclau became convinced that Marxism rested on conceptual binaries that necessarily left it incomplete and unable to assimilate the events of the 20th century. For instance, some Marxists argue that revolution is structurally inevitable, that capitalism will produce objective revolutionary situations, and yet at the same time they argue that these revolutions also involve an element of contingency or spontaneity. If the revolution is inevitable and emerges from economic conditions, how can it be contingent? If it is contingent, how can it be inevitable? Marxists cannot actually assimilate both a principle of structural determinism and a principle of contingency into the same view. They therefore either deny contingency or they treat contingency as a black box. But if contingency is a black box, then any apparent failures of the structural theory can be waved away by appeal to it. This allows structural Marxists like Althusser to avoid having to improve the theory. In a similar way, some theorists like Jurgen Habermas suppose that we can arrive at a universal grammar, a single universal perspective that we will discover once class conflict is abolished. Other theorists like Leotard from last week argue that there is necessarily a plurality of perspectives that are akin to different languages that cannot be translated into one another without a cost to meaning. Laclau and Mouffe argue that the concept of hegemony can be used to overcome the tension between these two views. A hegemonic discourse is a discourse that claims to be universal, but is in fact imposed by force. The very fact that it can be identified as hegemonic implies both its claim to universality and its failure to live up to that claim. If the discourse really were universal, we could not feel sufficiently external to it to label it hegemonic our capacity to call a discourse hegemonic is thus itself suggestive of the limitations of that discourse. So, for LeClau and Mouffe, politics has, to this point, been about trying to establish a hegemonic discourse. A hegemonic discourse pledges to abolish contradiction without actually abolishing it. On their view, the left is failing to contest the hegemony of capitalism, It's failing to propose, much less impose, an alternative discourse that can take capitalism's place. It is therefore constantly waging political struggle on capitalism's own terms within the linguistic framework that capitalism imposes. Their question then is how can the left stop doing that and actually make a bid to disrupt capitalist hegemony? First, they argue that the left must acknowledge the degree to which its old terms and categories have failed to establish hegemony. Subjects do not think of themselves as workers, and over time they have become less likely to think of themselves that way. Instead of trying to raise class consciousness to get subjects to think of themselves as workers, they argue the left should recognize the ways subjects are currently thinking of themselves, working with the identities that are emergent instead of against them. These groups then become the basis for a plurality of sites of political power. Instead of one revolutionary party that centralizes power leading to the kind of authoritarian communism that is associated with the Soviet Union, a plurality of groups leads to a plurality of power bases. These power bases give rise to a left and to a kind of radical democracy that is not only decentralized, but develops in a bottom-up way from the group identities that are already emergent. This radical democracy they maintain is not itself a bid for hegemony because it itself emerges from a plurality of power bases. The work of the theorist is to contest and attempt to extend the liberal values like liberty and equality and to encourage the groups to see their distinct struggles as mutually reinforcing. By doing this, the group identities are subtly changed over time, becoming more radical and democratic in character. They are not simply represented in democratic spaces spaces, excuse me. They are formed through their participation in those spaces and they're radicalized through them. These radical democratic institutions are then discursive spaces. The subjects are constituted through discourse rather than through, say, material conditions or class position. The creation of the democratic discursive space is therefore principally about changing the people who participate in the spaces rather than realizing their interests or goals as they would have been formulated earlier on when they were external to the space. More than any of the other theorists we have done in recent weeks, hegemony and socialist strategy describes the left's political project as it actually exists today, I think. Uh, I hate it. Hate this book. Absolutely love it. Here's why. So if you participate in some left-wing group today, you think you are going to the meetings so that you can work together with other people to achieve shared political goals. But the left-wing organization is not there to achieve your goals. It's there to change who you are. You think you are there to achieve better wages and conditions or to win a right to health care or to overthrow capitalism, but you are not there to do any of those things. You are not to be represented nor are you even meaningfully there to participate. You are there to be constituted as a member of a group and to have the appropriate attitude to the other groups. Only insofar as you have been constituted in this way will your participation be welcomed. All of this is pitched to you as a form that you may contribute to, but it really exists to constitute you as the kind of subject Laclau and Mouffe claimed came into existence organically. And this is not just a problem with specific left-wing organizations, but with direct democracy in general. It frames itself as participatory, when really its purpose is to shape the participants into the kinds of citizens who will identify with the organization's decisions because they will see themselves as having participated in them. In this way, while representative democracy rests on an obvious lie that those who are absent can be represented as if they were present, Direct democracy rests on a much less obvious and more insidious lie, that you are part of the assembly to affect the decision, rather than to be constituted as the sort of subject who will identify with the decisions of the assembly. Along the same lines, the group identities to which Leclaud and Mouffe refer were not freely taken up by the workers as alternatives to thinking of themselves as workers. Rather, those group identities were foisted upon workers by oligarchs and corporations as a means of dividing and conquering the working class. The groups are themselves essentialized constructs, committing all the crimes against pluralism that LeClau and Mouffe allege are committed by the old proponents of class consciousness. Left-wing organizations have traded in raising class consciousness for constructing group identities on the assumption that they can control the way these group identities are expressed. They hope to put these groups in the service of some left-wing project with an increasingly ambiguous character that is increasingly disconnected from what used to be called the material interests of the working class. It is increasingly clear that the true name of this project is liberal capitalism, though many of the people who are committed to it remain blissfully unaware of the role they are playing. Now, openly flirting with endorsing capitalism, as Leotard did, is in itself an interesting thing to do. And we often cover theorists who are liberal, are capitalist, or who argue that there are significant advantages to liberalism or capitalism. We can learn a lot from a theorist who thinks in an open way about the advantages and disadvantages of different economic and political systems. But this book is deeply disingenuous, applying the critique of essentialism only to class categories and never to the categories that decentered class which are framed as having arisen organically through social movements. When pressed, Laclau and Mouffe will of course say that these other categories are also constructed, but this is never where the emphasis is placed. It must be recognized that class was not decentered in an organic or neutral way. It was deliberately and purposefully decentered to weaken worker movements. Resources were deployed in the service of this end, a whole culture industry was created, think tanks were founded, the universities were penetrated. This material economic context drops out of Laclau and Roof's analysis almost completely, though when pressed, they always deny this and claim it's still present. Indeed, the very idea that liberty and equality can be radicalized by a theorist presupposes that the environment in which the theorist theorizes in is not itself shaped by the existing distribution of wealth and power. It presupposes the rejection of the distribution of wealth and power as a meaningfully constraining factor upon the theorist. Now, in Lyotard, there is a set of discrete questions kicked up by the events of 1968 in France. We may think that Lyotard misread that event or overgeneralized on the basis of it, but his political analysis is, at least, motivated by an event which seemed to him to jar with the view of the world he received. And in Leotard we also get a rather interesting aesthetic philosophy, albeit one that does not seem to have real political legs. Many artists misread Lyotard and think that it's their task to be original rather than to gesture at what cannot be said. But I do think Lyotard offers a meaningful account of what art is meant to do. Here, however, we just get bad theory, the kind of theory that leads real people to waste their lives in the service of political projects that not only cannot succeed on their own terms, but ultimately aid and abet the system they purport to critique and oppose. I do, however, want to look at how Laclau's thought developed after and socialist strategy. One interesting idea that comes out of Laclau's later work is the empty signifier, a concept that is necessary as part of a conceptual scheme but cannot have any precise content. Instead of having content, the concept has a function. From a Marxist point of view, the function of an empty signifier is often ideological. It exists to get subjects to accept some conceptual scheme that could not be accepted in the absence of the concept. Because empty signifiers are vague, subjects are free to project their own values onto those signifiers, filling them up with whatever they like. This means that the empty signifier means different things to different people. The trouble is that if it becomes clear that the empty signifier does not have a real material meaning, that there is some particular understanding of the term that will, in fact, uh, form the basis for state action, uh, either of these will disrupt the interpretations that are incompatible with this deployment or incompatible uh, with a realization that the concept is totally vague. For Laclau, the concept of the people performs this role in populist politics. The people never describes the whole people, but only the parts of the people that are together in a solidaristic coalition against those who are taken to be the rulers or the elite. These people feel they are not represented by the rulers, and so they treat the rulers as external antagonists. In describing these people as a united people, the populist papers over differences in plurality within this solidaristic coalition. But populism doesn't just paper over these differences, it shapes the people who identify with the concept of the people so that over time these differences become smaller and more manageable. This reduces the likelihood that the populist leader will act in a way that unmasks the concept, revealing it as empty. The longer the populist movement endures, the harder it is for the leader to act in a way that undermines the unifying concept, unless and until something happens to fracture the populists, to disrupt the notion of the people in a more fundamental way. When that happens for Laclau, the apparent unity of the popular demands collapses and we get a return to a plurality of democratic demands. This is, I think, very useful insofar as it can be used to describe very effectively how the left populism of the late tens disintegrated and why the right populism of that period still endures. In the case of the left, populism conflicts with the emphasis on group difference, and so it is comparatively much easier to suggest that the populist leader is not actually speaking for the people, insofar as the populist leader inevitably falls short of fully satisfying all the group constituencies. Bernie Sanders was accused of being sexist, of paying insufficient attention to race, of being too conciliatory about guns, and so on, because the populist left was a thin veneer over what was and still remains a group-based politics. The incompleteness of his movement was easy to expose at relatively early stages. This was exacerbated by Sanders' own willingness to subsequently endorse in the general election candidates who are, from the populist standpoint, straightforwardly members of the elite, like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. Trump, on the other hand, is working with a right that from the start wants to believe that there is a national people with unitary characteristics, with a common culture and religious sensibility against which the elite has transgressed. Trump never pledged to support Republican candidates who struck his supporters as members of the elite, and he made a name for himself principally by mocking old guard figures like Jeb Bush. He then became president, and so he was able to lead his populist movement for a long time. This allowed the Trumpian conception of the people to further solidify, constituting his supporters in a more complete way, binding them closer together and to him. The irony is that Laclau failed to recognize the degree to which the politics he inspired and described cleared the way for the right to exercise an effective monopoly on the category of populism. He died in 2014, never witnessing the 2016 election or the events that followed it. Moof, however, is still alive, and in 2018 wrote a book called For a Left Populism. In that work, she drops the idea that radical democracy is in any way a break with ordinary representative democracy, framing this as a misunderstanding and emphasizing the importance of reconceptualizing liberty and equality. She then frames left populism as something that might be constructed around green politics. This culminates in the book she wrote just last year called Toward a Green Democratic Revolution. This work strikes me as totally disconnected from real politics in the United States, where green politics is increasingly part of the culture war. Attitudes to cars, zoning laws, and meat Are increasingly used to polarize and perpetuate conventional liberal politics, not to unite people together into anything like a counter hegemonic block. So in recent weeks, I think we've discussed a number of theorists who have made interesting contributions, though, I think in in each instance, I felt that the politics implied by these theories has fallen short, and not really been adequate to dealing with events. Uh, Even in Laclau, I think you can find some of that in this idea of an empty signifier or in the description of populism. I think some of that is is useful and interesting. But I think here, because the politics is made more explicit than it is elsewhere, the politics is revealed to be really, really vacuous in a way that is quite totalizing. And I don't think I could do this episode without discussing that in a pretty explicit way.
0: But maybe Alex disagrees. What did you think, Alex? Would it need to be more anti-system to be non-vacuous? Because Zizek, yeah, we can talk about how he counters Zizek. And- yeah, one of the things that's interesting
1: is that Leclough and Zizek used to be friends. Indeed, they, along with Judith Butler, co-wrote a volume in... I think it was the uh, early 2000s. But then they had a falling out. And I find it interesting first that Zizek could be friendly with Leclerc in the first place, uh, and then that they had a falling out. The falling out does seem to be in part based around, for one, Zizek's insistence that class and economic relations be given a priority in the theory, and uh, Zizek's accusation that Leclerc doesn't do that. Laclau, of course, when he's directly confronted with that argument, denies that he doesn't do that. But there are points in the text where he very clearly makes a point to not give class uh, any kind of priority or the economic context any kind of priority. Uh, A second point of major contestation is that Laclau and Mouffe, after having proposed some kind of radical democracy, eventually come out with a view that really our ordinary representative democracy is capable of performing the function. Whereas Zizek moves in the opposite direction and becomes increasingly committed to revolutionary politics, right? Now for Laclau and Mouffe, the revolution is about concentrating power into a central point so that it can be deployed to change the society in a stroke. And therefore it is inherently somewhat anti-pluralist from their point of view. So for Zizek to move toward revolution necessarily moves him further away, I think, from the Laclau move position. But it's interesting that he he could ever be close to this position in the first instance. And I think some of that might reflect in the 80s and 90s before it became entirely clear how vacuous this this politics was going to be. It was possible to think that maybe this was where things were going. I think coming back to the The sympathy for the misreading of the the 68 event, I think a lot of people could imagine in the later part of the 20th century that the population was just going to get more educated and more professional in character. And as it became more educated, more professional, it would become more amenable to group politics. And that if the left was to survive, it would have to find a way to accommodate that. I can understand why people would think that in the 70s and 80s and 90s. I think the last 20 years have really made that theory look inadequate. And in Laclau's defense, the last book he writes is in the mid 2000s. I don't think he really lived long enough to personally have to see and confront all this. The fact that Mouffe has lived long enough to see and confront all of it and has, in my view, confronted it very poorly doesn't suggest that Laclau would have confronted it very effectively. But it must be said that McLeod didn't live to see the events of the last seven, eight years and might've had a different view about it
0: if he had. Um, Yeah. But he's not a liberal Democrat. Well, he
1: doesn't say that he is, but then there are the implications of the politics. So I think a lot of theorists can say, I don't have this position or I don't have that position. But once you commit to a politics, There are implications of that politics that even if you're not conscious of them or not aware of them or they're not what you intend, uh, are significant for what the theory's ultimate consequences are. And I think what Laclau's theory did, it contributed in the mid-80s to a a trend in which a lot of different Marxists, -Marxists, post-Marxists, left liberals or non-Marxist socialists, made arguments for decentering class, decentering the economy, and placing more and more emphasis on social groups, social issues, cultural issues. And insofar as this contributed to that at a relatively early stage in that turn, you know, 1985, you know, if we think about what's the decade in which the politics of group difference are the things that everybody's talking about, you know, that decade would be the 90s. This is before that became the thing that everybody was talking about. And uh, I think it it has had a negative role, even though throughout this whole period, Leclerc has maintained that uh, or or did maintain that he had radical commitments and wasn't just interested in perpetuating all of this. I think in practice, this kind of politics uh, has fed into perpetuating all of this. And not just because there's, say, uh, uh, liberal movements that copy this kind of thing from a liberal standpoint, though there are, uh, but also because insofar as socialist and overtly left movements have taken up the strategy and taken up these tactics, I think it's been very counterproductive for them.
0: If he was more leftist, though, he would kind of agree with, oh, sorry, if he was more liberal, he would say things about democracy like it's based on norms rather than force or He would say there's a big private sphere that is protected from the public, but he does seem to make claims that, you know, kind of left-wing claims where the slightest term is kind of overladen with power and, yeah, all private. Yeah. Yeah,
1: but a lot of the emphasis here is on discourse having this constituting role. So instead of it being power relations or economic relations, as you might see in Althusser, or in Foucault, for that matter, the emphasis is very, very heavily on discourse and the capacity of discourse to construct people. And there is a kind of of constructivism that positions itself these days as left-wing, but which mainly frames people as completely products of language and products of how they talk or how they are spoken to, or the particular things they read or hear, the words. And this is very appetizing for academics, because academics deal in words. And if you can frame all of politics as downstream from words, then in a sense, all of politics becomes downstream from academia, insofar as academics are the ones who, political theorists in particular, we invent new political terms, we conceptualize and reconceptualize new political terms. You know, that's very overtly put at the center of all of this. Indeed, even when Moof drops a commitment to any kind of radical democracy, what she maintains is this commitment to the idea that the theorists have to reconceptualize liberty or equality to make these concepts more demanding, more effective. If you go back a ways in our catalog, we've done a couple episodes on these, these concepts. There's an episode on liberty and one on equality, and I think one on representation, where we talk about different ways of playing around with these terms. And I think the thing that's really missing from all of this is an awareness that the kinds of theory that you can produce about liberty or about equality are very much heavily influenced by Who is willing to fund research and what kinds of of theory will tend to be taken up by external funding bodies. And in a world where a lot of the research on these concepts doesn't even come from academics, but comes from think tanks uh, and where think tanks and the universities are increasingly operating in the same space and competing for the same resources and increasingly play the same kind of role in research and in society. There is an economic context for this theory that is really quite important and almost never discussed by theorists who never want to acknowledge that their theory could in any way be influenced by material incentives, especially the theorists who position themselves as being radical around the left.
0: Well, you make him sound like a structuralist, maybe, because that, that would mean you can directly access things through language, whereas a post structuralist would say, no, the discourse mediates the the direct access. And then when you say it kind of ignores the context, well, the post-structuralism comes with similar movements in also analytic philosophy and phenomenology where they can no longer, in analytic philosophy, they have the referent in phenomenology, the phenomenon. They can no longer take those things as methods to access directly the thing in itself. So he's obviously aware that there's a postmodern context. And then if you were to press him, what would that mean? He would definitely give material reasons, because, yeah, you can see in his books, he distinguishes uh, the mode of production. He uses Marxist concepts and critiques them and all that. So,
1: yeah. Yes, he uses the concepts, but I, I think he uses the concepts largely to rationalize getting rid of them or, or putting them to the side. Uh, what I would say about the structuralism is... It's interesting because this is a post structuralist theory that's influenced by Althusser, so influenced by structuralism uh, and what it what it does is it starts by saying that really anything that's structuralist has failed to take into account the degree to which you know language is constructed and all terms and all concepts are being constructed all the time and can't refer back to anything essential now the idea that terms do not straightforwardly uh, match the things that they describe, that the sign doesn't match the thing that it describes. That idea is incredibly old, right? So, you know, in Plato, a word is itself an imitation of the concept that the word is being used to try to get at, right? And most concepts are downstream from, for Plato, the unifying concept of the good. So, words are quite alienated from the thing that they are ultimately trying to refer back to, this universal that they're ultimately trying to refer back to. So for Plato, you aren't going to be able to neatly get back to the universal with words. You are you can try to approach or get closer, but there's always going to be a gap because you're in one body separated from other bodies and you're using words. And it was for this reason that Plato was very reluctant to. Uh, write a whole lot down. And when he did write things down, he wrote dialogues that were conversational so that it was not uh, simply a a series of statements or axioms that you were to memorize and treat as as a biblical text, right? The difference in the post-structuralists is not that the, the, uh, you know, it's not that theorists like Plato didn't understand that words don't correspond directly to the things in themselves. It's that post-structuralist claim that there is no thing in itself because you can't describe it. That there is no universal that you're ever going to get at. That all there is, is just plurality. That the fact that we have a separation of of persons in different bodies means that there is nothing universal that we are ultimately gesturing back to. If language is all that we have, then all we have is partial. And then that is, is all that exists. So it uh, naturalizes this condition that for Plato and for I think a lot of uh, older theorists is a contingent feature of the way in which the universe is presently organized, right? The fact that we are in separate bodies and that we're trying to get across to each other what's going on in our brains when our brains aren't wired together in some kind of hive mind, right? The only way that we can get that across is with language and language doesn't capture exactly what's going on in our heads. And what's in our heads doesn't capture all of reality because we only have eyes to see and ears to hear and a nose. And these are pretty limited senses for taking in the whole universe. So what's in our head is a limited picture. What we're able to describe is a limited description of what's in our head and what other people are able to understand of what we said is limited. So all of these limitations mean that very quickly you get very estranged from the the initial thing, right? those estrangements don't necessarily mean that there is no initial thing or that there's no point in trying to approach an initial thing or in treating it as if there's an initial thing. But the usual post-structuralist move is to deny there being any initial thing in the first instance and to claim that all there is is agonism, right? Whereas in older religious views, like say Gandhi's view, there's many paths to one truth, right? And because people are looking at the same thing from different points of view with different eyes and are only able to talk to each other in words, they're not all going to neatly get to that one thing. So therefore there will of course be plurality in as people will see things in different ways and disagree. And those disagreements will never go away as long as we are organized the way we are into separate bodies with these kinds of senses. As long as we're human beings in the ordinary sense of the term, we're not going to be able to, to get at ultimate reality. Nevertheless, theorists like Gandhi or Plato think that there is something to be had from trying to do that, right? Whereas the post-structuralists think that you must drop it out completely, that you must drop out that end thing and only treat this as a series of, of different discourses that you can have or that you can be in. Now, if it's just discourses and there is no thing that the discourses ultimately describe, then you get into a condition where only language can affect the way people are socialized and the way they are formed because all that exists is what we make up in language. And there's nothing that is inspiring the language or causing us, there's nothing we're trying to describe because there's no thing in itself to describe, right? So what we think we're doing, describing a thing in itself is really just constructing various forms of language. And those forms of language can't be uh, compared to each other in terms of whether they accurately correspond to anything. So we can't say that any of them are better or worse or or that they are closer or further removed from some object or goal. And that results in a situation where all you have is different discourses, different languages. And so uh, it's just a question of, of which languages you prefer, which ones you like. And at that point, it becomes very difficult to hold any kind of normative line about what you're doing. Now in leotard, there's a recognition of this. And there's a concern about, don't we need some sort of break on this so that we don't make excuses for things like the Holocaust or Nazi Germany or Adolf Hitler, right? And Leotard comes up with a mechanism in his theory for trying to avoid doing that. And at least he tries, at least he views the language of, of the good and justice and so on as one of the languages that you've got to pay attention to, as something you can't exclude because were you to exclude it, you would be guilty of the same thing that you accuse that language of doing, which is excluding other languages or other perspectives on the basis of asserting itself, right? So at least Leotard is is consistent in that he applies the plurality also to languages that emphasize concepts like the good. So he doesn't exclude or kick that out. He does, however, deny the, the, the full seriousness of that language because the full seriousness of that language would require to some degree subordinating or at least an attempt at subordinating other kinds of language to those concepts in the way that Plato always tries to ultimately subordinate any other concept that you come up with to the idea of the good, right? And there is therefore always going to be a certain amount of antagonism between Leotard and Plato on that score. But Leotard doesn't kick it out. With this kind of thing, now because you are explicitly denying the role of material forces in shaping people, uh, and, and heavily, heavily, insofar as you acknowledge it, heavily qualifying that role uh, and often acknowledging it to give cover for the degree to which you're qualifying it, uh, you end up with something that is, is much more uh, just a discursive game with no real breaks on it.
0: But the whole idea, maybe he's describing this postmodern condi- condition, like what you said in the beginning. There's unfixity, so the socialist objectives might not actually correspond to the workers they're supposed to be talking to, and the boundaries are always dissolving and shifting the allegiances. doesn't mean he's committing to it. I mean, he has a concept of emancipation, which means destiny. He critiques the postmodernists who say that you should... You know, usually identity politics, where you satisfy one particular demand, and then the whole struggle goes away because you've been incorporated into the system as opposed to a systemic challenge where you make a kind of demand that can never really be satisfied by the system. And then every time it is satisfied, it allows you to say, oh, but look at the future, we've still got this to win. So it's it's still- It's
1: interesting because Leotard usually is the one who comes in more readily for the accusation of relativism. But I think it's worse in LeCloud than it is in, in Leotard because Leotard has in his schema uh, an overt reason for trying to prevent something like the Holocaust, which is that the language of, of morality or or the good is one of the languages that you can't exclude. And what the Nazis do is they exclude that language. And in doing that, you know, they commit an offense fundamentally against plurality, right? With this, I think that because uh, you are viewing whatever it is that the subjects are doing in the democratic space as what you ultimately have to take up, the subjects are formed through the democratic space and then whatever comes out of them is what you are meant to take up. It's not really clear what it is or why it is that you would prefer those subjects to have particular goals rather than other goals. So for instance, If it's perfectly fine for the subjects to not think in terms of class, and we should just take up whatever the subjects are thinking about, regardless of what it is or why they're thinking about that. Uh, What if the subjects have all become heavily, heavily uh, racialized in what they think about, and they have views that are increasingly very far right? Uh, What is the basis for rejecting this if this is happening through the democratic institutions, You you have democratic spaces that form your subjects. Over time, your subjects are becoming more uh, hostile and uh, thinking more in terms of friend-enemy antagonisms. The fact that they are thinking in this way, uh, if you're supposed to just respond to whatever identities are current and to naturalize those or to, uh, I mean, he doesn't naturalize them, to be fair. He says that they're all constructed. And the democratic spaces are supposed to form the subjects to construct them in particular ways. But why would you, where in this theory do we really get a basis for preferring constructing them in certain ways rather than in other ways? Since it's mainly language which shapes people in this theory, why should we prefer to use some terms rather than others or to push some conceptualizations uh, rather than others? You know there's this emphasis on emancipation, yes, but why should there be an emphasis on emancipation? If you have an emphasis on on emancipation or liberty or equality or whatever, but you view all of this as principally a discursive struggle, not something that's rooted in material circumstances. There's no obvious reason why it should remain focused on emancipation in something like a left-wing sense. This theory can be picked up easily and used by someone who has right-wing views or liberal views to try to produce what it is that they would like to do instead. if you say, ah, the goal of the theorist is to conceptualize liberty and equality in ways that lead to emancipation, well, why shouldn't the goal of the theorist be to conceptualize them in other ways that lead to the maintenance of the liberal state or, uh, you know, the collapse of it in favor of some kind of far-right thing? What is the The device in this theory that would prevent that. Now, personally, I'm sure Laclau and Mouffe have personal views that don't conflict very much with the appropriation of this theory for uh, liberal use or right-wing use, right? They personally would not at all countenance that and would think it repugnant if anybody used the theory in that way. But there's nothing in the theory itself which prevents this appropriation because the theory itself doesn't give you any particular reason for preferring the more left-wing articulations of liberty or equality to other articulations, because it theorizes that you can do these things in a context where there's an enormous uh, concentration of wealth and power in the hands of particular people and particular kinds of organizations and institutions. Uh, It ignores what is actually going to happen if theorists try to implement this theory, which is that they're gonna be influenced by that material backdrop, and the conceptualizations of liberty and equality that they formulate will be ultimately turned and used to oppose the political project that Laclau and Mouffe claim they espouse. So I I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that Laclau and Mouffe are right wing or that they are liberal, but they have a theory that is easy to appropriate and easy uh, to to take in other directions. So if you are someone who's left wing and you read this book and you become uh, convinced by it, I think you are in danger of being lured into doing a politics that doesn't actually advance your own goals and which actually advances the goals of your adversaries. And I am not someone who's going to tell people, you know, you can't be left-wing or right-wing or liberal or whatever it is, you know, you you can do whatever you want to do, but I think we should If we think that somebody's political theory will result in the people who take up that theory not being able to achieve their own goals, we should point that out because uh, that theory is, is a rabbit hole. It's something that people could get deeply involved with and waste a lot of time in, not from my point of view in terms of what I think normatively should happen necessarily, although it is the case in this instance, but from their own point of view. From that person's own perspective, what they're doing is not going to work. Hmm. And that's why I feel this need to, to criticize it, because I do
0: think it's a trap. Whenever any team, though, they make something into a concept like determined by the economy or by culture, by order maintenance, the whole point of the empty signifier is that you can't express the impossible necessary aspect of that Concept. So there's some, so it put that particular identity points towards universal that is actually impossible. So it keeps failing at reaching it. So I'm guessing for all the different types of hegemonic concepts that are used in teams, they would eventually point towards subordination. So it, it, because the, the, yeah, the the class will is not one. Group It's a complex group identity. So there's gonna be domination, subordination anywhere. So, yeah.
1: Well, so I think this is one of the conceits of this theory is that there's no way to be pluralist outside of this kind of framework. So, you know, this idea that any, any conceptual scheme which attempts to say anything about the universal or about the thing in itself can't be pluralist is I think a core premise of this view. And I don't think that premise is true I think that we find in many very tolerant and open-minded religious theorists that we've done on this podcast before, an idea that there is, say, the good or truth or God, but that it is not possible for any one person to have a full understanding of that concept and that therefore there will be a plurality of different, not just different understandings, but different paths or ways or traditions uh, of interacting with that concept that People can interact through it, not just from different religious points of view, but through different crafts, through different social roles. Uh, All of that is obviated by a theory which insists that anything which has any kind of pretension to the universal, no matter how qualified, can't be pluralist and must be a language of, of subjugation. And that excludes most of the kinds of pluralism that have previously existed earlier in the history of political thought. And its effect is to make a lot of theorists who were remarkably pluralistic and tolerant in many respects out to be you know, authoritarian theorists who think there's only one very, very specific way of doing things. And this likens a lot of theorists who are not at all totalitarian to say the you know, the project of the Soviet Union or the project of Nazi Germany. You know, Karl Popper does this when he you know, tries to draw a line between you know, Plato and Marx and the Soviet Union and say that All of these historicists are all, you know, because they have a grand theory or a big, uh, large narrative that they must be committed to some kind of totality. And I think this is a very uncharitable way to read other political theorists. Uh, I accuse Laclau and Mouffe of having been uncharitable in their book, Uh, and I accuse the people who are in this phylum of being uncharitable to the history of political thought and to the theorists in, in that tradition, and both in the West and uh, in other parts of the world. It's a very narrow way to read the old dead guys. As all essentialistic and thinks- Yes, it, it is very essentialistic. It is. There's a, a piece that came out in New Left Review shortly after uh, hegemony and socialist strategy was published by Norman Garros called Post-Marxism, which effectively makes this point that there is an essentialism that is concealed in this book insofar as Marxism is the thing that gets essentialized and treated as if it has a set of fixed essential components. Those fixed essential components are not particularly charitably read. uh, And then particular Marxist theorists are celebrated in this book only insofar as they stray from those components. And then their straying is used as evidence that Marxism itself is something to move beyond. And in that piece, Norman Garris makes the argument that uh, rather than call this post-Marxism, they should call it ex-Marxism or anti-Marxism that the post is a way of concealing the degree to which it actually is a rubbishing of the entire tradition. The fact that they've cited and engaged with all of these different theorists and used all of these different Marxist concepts is a sleight of hand to conceal the degree to which they are trying to throw all of them into the rubbish bin of history. Uh, different Marxist theorists like Rosa Luxemburg, Kotsky and so on are brought up in this book uh, just so that they can be uh, hoisted on the petard of particular things they've done, which on the view of, of, uh, of, uh, of these guys is too essentialist. Essentialism becomes the universal crime, which everybody in the history of Marxism and indeed the history of political thought is accused of. Uh, and it totally flattens out all of the differences in the theories that we've looked at. It, it collapses all of them. Now, that's not to say that I think that essentialism in general is never a critique that is appropriately, uh, you know, thrown out there. But I think before we had the word essentialism, we had a different word that I think got the same thing across, which is reification, treating an abstraction or a sign as if it were the thing in itself, right? And that's something that Much earlier in the history of political thought, you could find people making that kind of critique. You know, Plato thinking, "Ah, you think the word is the thing itself, but what what does that word mean? We don't know what it means. So how can we say that we know what the word means just because we've heard the word before?" Uh, You know, these kinds of arguments have been made, and under something like reification, you can really dig into that as an issue. You can also get to the limits of that discourse. You know, one of the things that's Uh, One of the contributions that Adorno makes in negative dialectics that I think is really uh, helpful is this idea that just observing that a concept has been reified doesn't get rid of it. There's still a reason that people are thinking in terms of that concept or using that concept. And just because you can intellectually point out that's a reified abstraction. That isn't really what's going on. It doesn't mean that that in and of itself, that realization by you will eliminate the concepts force in society. To actually eliminate the concepts force, you would have to change the society. It's not enough for you to develop an enlightened attitude. And this is the limitation of the intellectual. The intellectual can make all of these critiques of concepts and say, ah, these concepts are essentialized or they're reified, or they need to be reconceptualized in some different way, or we need to have a discourse which constitutes people in such a way that they think differently. All of that can be said, but if you don't in any way engage with the material distribution of wealth and power in the society, the economic and political structures, it's very, very difficult to just talk your way out of a concept that came into existence for, for reasons that have to do with the structure of the society itself. Now, that doesn't need to be narrowly interpreted as as just economism or just economy. It can be interpreted more broadly in terms of lots of different social structures, institutions that we have. Uh, but if you assert that it's purely discursive and that by changing the discourse or by changing the forums in which we talk about things, that in itself will uh, produce something different. That's really a, a way of not engaging with the facts on the ground, and it produces a political tradition that is alienated from material facts, which is precisely the thing that they start this book off by accusing old-fashioned Marxism of having become a tradition that's alienated from facts, those facts being that people don't actually identify as workers, they instead identify on the basis of social group. So the the Geras piece, I think, makes a good point that this piece is uh, this book is itself guilty of many of the things it accuses others of having
0: been guilty of. Is it just the leftists who care about distribution of wealth? And then you talk about Lukács. He's a bit. Uh, he's considered reductionist, class reductionism, where you just have the simple false consciousness, class consciousness, and then maybe that. If you subscribe to that, then you're committing the error of just believing in the symbolic. And not the real to use le- lacan so you think that there's a big other who pulls the strings whereas the whole point about the dimension of the real it's a failure to symbolize so whatever you give it it won't yeah it won't be that determination
1: well i i don't see why those things are necessarily incompatible points right so we can we can say on the one hand that you can't get the thing in itself, that you can't have the real in its fullness, right? Uh, we, can, we can say that. You know, we can go with leotard and say that you know, there's something sublime that you can't speak about. Uh, but that doesn't have to be interpreted to mean that none of our categories are relevant or meaningful, because even if our categories are partial or incomplete, they can still be more useful than, than having nothing, right? If a word is viewed as an attempt to talk about some idea, which has come into our heads for reasons, because we've been interacting with something out there that causes us to have ideas and words are ways of trying to communicate that. If we take that point, we can say, OK, of course, the word does not fully capture the thing. And of course, our conceptual schemes can't fully capture what's going on because as human beings, we have a limited space for variables. If you think about how many variables can a social theory really properly take into account, how complicated can the conceptual scheme really become? Before it becomes impossible for someone to remember all their concepts and apply them consistently, it doesn't take that many concepts for a theorist to run out of road there. So, most theorists do not claim that their theory is total or that it fully describes reality in a didactic or dogmatic one to one way. What the theorist will instead say is that the theory is useful, that if you think in terms of the theory, when you're presented with a situation where you have to make a choice, you're more likely to make a a, a good choice or a choice that you value on some conceptual schema, right? Uh, that is a very different standard for a theory than the standard that gets applied to theory here, where the thought is if if the theory isn't com- complete and total, uh, then the theorist is necessarily overclaiming. But these theorists are not necessarily claiming that what they have is complete and total. Uh, And even insofar as they may have gotten a little bit full of themselves in one moment and said something that suggested that they believe that, that doesn't mean that's really what they think. A lot of people get a little bit uh, carried away and will assert that what they think they know is more than they really do know. But if we go back to Socrates for the whole history, Of philosophy and political thought, there has always been a willingness on the part of people who make claims to also sometimes think, well, you know, how sure can you be? Except in cases where those people are engaged in a kind of political discourse that where for political reasons, they have to pretend to be more sure of themselves than they really are. Very few people really are dogmatists, even the people who play them on TV, very few of
0: them really are. Yeah, it, it makes me want to talk about the transcendental versus the his- historicism. I don't know if that's worth it, though.
1: Or well, Do you have something you want to say about that?
0: No, just more like fitting this into that. So, because Zizek seems to have this kind of, uh, or, or butler, because he they do a shared book, all three of them. So, yeah. It's almost like there's an, em- the, there's an empty frame, I don't know, that's always filled in by this Marxist narrative and he's just saying that the, the abstract is not that formal. It's just more concrete. So, of course, yeah. There's just less of a ready-made discourse that you can use.
1: Well, and I think this is something else that bears mentioning. For Marx, what is distinctive about Marxism versus other earlier kinds of socialism is that Marxism is meant to be scientific in the sense that it is uh, meant to be something you are constantly revising. It is not supposed to be one fixed view of things that applies for all time. And in all circumstances, it's meant to be an evolving understanding of the um, economic relations in society and their consequences. So, It is not framed by Marx as something that is meant to be fixed. Now, some Marxists do treat it as something that can be fixed or something that can be schemed out and then straightforwardly applied. But the tradition includes a lot of other ways of approaching it. When Marxists change the scheme, one of the things that they will standardly emphasize is that Marx said, this is supposed to be something that you can revise over time. Uh, That emphasis is also present in Althusser, who said, this is something we should be revising over time. Now, that doesn't mean that people who are committed to revising things over time got things right. On the contrary, the fact that they're committed to revising things over time suggests that their theories will apply better to their own times than to our times. And that there will be incompletenesses even at the times in which these theories were theorized. And other people will have a real role to play in trying to improve upon them. But if you get rid of this idea that we can improve upon theories or that we can improve our understanding in some way, and you frame this just as discursive alternatives with no role really to be played for judgment,
0: I think you end up in a very bad place. So... Yes, agree, because it's always discursive alternatives. There's always this feature of a particular that poses itself as the universal. But at the same time, no, because I thought it's judged against the standards of subordination.
1: Well, that, those happen to be the standards that, you know, the concepts that have formed Laclauwe. But it just happens to be the case that these concepts have formed Laclau and that Laclau cares about these concepts. There's nothing in this theory to ensure that someone would care about these concepts, apart from theorists like Laclau, who already do care about these concepts, uh, conceptualizing them in new ways that they think are more emancipatory, and then finding ways to, through the democratic process, shape citizens into the kinds of people who think in that way and affirm those concepts. Uh, But for that to actually work, it would have to be the case, A, that the cloud is able to conceptualize these concepts in more emancipatory ways, and that B, it is actually possible for the intellectuals to project those concepts down to the citizens through their participation in the democratic system. And my contention is that it is not at all possible to do that because the thing that tends to get in the way is the distribution of economic and political power, which tends to ensure that people who have conceptualizations that are friendly to the status quo and to the establishment have a leg up in communicating their conceptualizations to the public and that people who participate in democratic spaces rather than receive better and better conceptualizations of equality and liberty, tend to receive either worse conceptualizations or conceptualizations that make no overall difference. And this happens even if there are a bunch of theorists who are very, very dedicated to doing their level best to improve the concepts. And it happens even if these theorists write wonderful books that do meaningfully improve the concepts. Quentin Skinner has written a really interesting you know, set of books about liberty. And you can find all kinds of very, very interesting and rigorous thought about equality in the political theory literature. It does not at all mean that democratic institutions are capable over time of communicating these things down to the population in such a way that the population adopts these concepts and then comes together to form a populist bloc on the basis of them or on the basis of the group identities that it will have taken up. All of that, I would suggest at this point, we have sufficient political evidence to show just doesn't work and isn't happening. And I can forgive people in the 80s and 90s for thinking that it might have happened. But the fact that Moof is still writing books like this now in the last five years, that's just really, uh, really not on. It started to become silly, I think, in my view. And people listening are free to form their own views about that. But uh, I, I do have to inject my view on this episode. I, I can't just
0: let this one slide. In the earlier book, so politics and ideology, he does talk about the capitalist economic system and how it's about average rate of profit And extra economic coercion versus economic coercion and, yeah, how the economic system can have different types of mode of production in it. So I'm just padding out my point earlier, Yeah, which is he uses Marxist concepts. He's sensitive to distribution of wealth, power, and he doesn't want to just keep us in one universal. So
1: what's... That's why it really cheeses me off. Because his practical political suggestions don't achieve any of that and instead lead people in a, I think, a totally different direction. If he just was a a liberal theorist who was just a theorist of of group politics, like Iris Marion Young, I wouldn't be nearly as worked up about it. It's the fact that this is all positioned as if it were in some way uh, contributing to a left-wing project, and that Laclau, I believe, sincerely thought he was contributing to some kind of left-wing project, and that many, many people... Are currently thinking of themselves as on the left and contributing to a left-wing project and doing something like this—that's uh, what gets me. You know, if it weren't the case that he used Marxist concepts, if he positioned all of it as overtly a liberal theory, you know, I would not be nearly as worked up about it. If we do an episode on Iris Marion Young, you know, I won't be nearly as worked up about it because it's honest about what it is. Uh, and I'm not saying that he's lying, but there is a, a fundamental problem when a theory has methods that it proposes, political strategies and tactics that it proposes, and strategy is in the title, socialist strategy. This is a book about strategy, right? Uh, And therefore, it has to be evaluated in strategic terms. If you have a strategy that doesn't actually, in any meaningful way, advance the ends that you purport to have, either you're lying to other people or you're lying to yourself. Um, And I think that at this point in 2023, anybody who still thinks that this is a model for how to do socialist strategy is lying to themselves. I will give a certain amount of room to people in the 80s thinking these things. It was a different world back then. We didn't know how everything was going to develop. The left was in in deep trouble in the 80s and 90s, and there was a need to come up with some new way of, of generating something. And I'm sure people had all kinds of, of difficult struggles over how to do that. And it was hard. And I'm sympathetic to that situation. The 80s were, for people on the left, a very bleak decade that didn't seem to offer much or promise much. And, and those people, they may have, have gotten things wrong, but I do believe that they, they were trying. Uh, but if you're picking up this book today and you think that, oh, yeah, this is good strategy, it's really not. And and it just has to be said.
0: So it's not trying to build alliances with liberals by using, yeah, fungible term, changeable terms, which are supposed to be empty. So you see, you see there's an antagonism in them, because if he was a liberal, then maybe he wouldn't say that. Well, the whole point of hegemony hegemony is about the social versus the non-social and how you can't actually access the non-social apart from using elements within it. So, you need to yeah he
1: he's not a liberal, but he has a liberal strategy. He has a strategy that has liberal implications. yeah you know, it's fine for liberals to have liberal strategies that have liberal implications, but not for people who position themselves on the left uh, and it's you know perfectly fine for people to propose that they think what's needed is a left liberal coalition, but I think the left liberal coalition is not doing very well. it's not accomplishing very much for working class people. Uh, this has become a very obvious problem that we have with this kind of political strategy. So on its own terms, it is not succeeding. This needs to be pointed out when we talk about it. It's not succeeding. And people are you know, living on this planet who are going to work every day and who would like there to be somebody fighting for them,
0: and nobody is. But the liberal wants individual ownership, and then you can bend that in a neoliberal conservative direction and make kind of, yeah, tradition more important and anti-egalitarianism, but you can also push it in the democratic direction. So extend that ownership to everybody, which is socialist. Right. So the promise... But the winners of that game tend to be the people who
1: have resources or who are backed by those who have resources. And that has a class bias to it. At one point in this book, they say that someone who is... uh, of of a working class background is no more likely to be socialist than someone who isn't, uh, you know, is no more likely to be the you know, revolutionary subject than someone who's not. If you have that kind of view, then you aren't going to be attentive to the inherent biasing terrain of trying to conceptualize these concepts in this environment where all of the institutions in which academics work are embedded within this economic system and within this distribution of of wealth and power. Uh, And, you know, you don't have to be opposed to all of that. You can say that you think it's all wonderful and fine, and you can have a barbarian attitude and say that the state needs to curate the the universities and curate the public culture so as to sustain itself and prevent there from being uh, too much social division or too much revolutionary sentiment. You can have a Weberian liberal attitude and we've talked about Weber on the show in the past. And I think Weber's a really smart and interesting liberal theorist because he bites those bullets and makes those points in that kind of way. But this, this does not bite the bullets. This tries to pretend that you can have things both ways and that you can have your cake and eat it too. I, I, That grinds my gears. I don't like that in theory. Well, I think we've come to the end of the line. So thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day.
0: Bye-bye. Goodbye.